Welcome to Crime in Plastic, a gripping podcast where I, Dr. Miami, one of the world's top plastic surgeons, and my co-host, Santina, the amateur true crime researcher, delve into the often unseen world where true crime and plastic surgery intersect. Each week, I share my expertise and insights into the complex world of cosmetic procedures, while Santina gives you the shocking details of criminal investigations. From notorious criminals undergoing drastic transformations to evade the law, to even our own personal encounters with true crime and plastic surgery, all will be uncovered. So sit back, relax, or don't, because this is Crime Crime and Plastic. Welcome back, everybody, to Crime and Plastic. How was your week? I had a great week. What was so great about it? It Just awesome. It was a great week. My son got engaged. Mazel tov. Really? Yeah. My, my week was even better. I had a better week than you because my boss's son got engaged. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah, a great week. No pretty, one said pretty, mazel tov to me. Pretty exciting for you. Pretty exciting <laughs> for you, thank you thank Santina. You. He's also kind of like your brother. So That's true. Yes, yes it's like a, my like third a, brother. Like a stepbrother. Yes. Well, actually, if I have to like, count the other Literally like a stepbrother <laughs> and stepbrothers. <laughs> We're stepbrothers and stepbrothers. Yeah. Sisters. Funny story, guys. Santina and I dressed up as a stepbrother's. We should probably, we could put that picture up on the website. That picture is, is iconic. Yeah. That you picture, guys pulled it off. No, what was better was Rosie walking around like <laughs> in the full stepbrother's outfit and just doing like rosy things. <laughs> She'd be like making someone a plate with like a like, <laughs> big wig. <laughs> it was funny. Well, anyway, I had a wonderful week and okay. I'm glad we're back. It was a busy week in the world of plastic surgery news. Aw, last week wasn't. So. Last week we had nothing. This week it's just like everything's... Right, go for it. Let's cue the music. This week in crime and plastic surgery news, a Virginia Beach doctor, plastic surgeon, pocketed patients' pain pills during a surgery break. Dr. John Mancall told the couple to get the drugs right away so while they went to sleep, he like went through their bag and took their drugs, basically? Like yeah, he pickpocketed them? I think them? so. He took a break from the procedure to tell the parents about a minor complication that came up <gasps> and then asked if they'd obtained the Percocet. When the father handed the pill bottle to the surgeon, he poured some of his ungloved hand and pointed to a pre-cut line to be used to divide them. Then he closed his hand around the pills and put some, but not all, back in the bottle before putting his hand in his pocket. So he did like so a sleight like, of hand? Yeah, like a, like a magic trick, like a close-up magic trick. <laughs> he, he, he was trying to show the parents how to cut the pill in half. That was his excuse to put them in his hand, but then he only uh, put some of them back. Okay. He's a plastic surgeon? Apparently. And he was doing surgery he's on a well, child? It says a well-known plastic surgeon. He's on trial in Norfolk on multiple charges of illegally obtaining and possessing two highly addictive prescription painkillers, Dilaudid and Percocet. Listen, drug addiction is real. So do you think a lot of doctors have an issue with it? I think probably more than other professions, for sure. Because of the access? Yeah, because of the, especially like anesthesia-related mm-hmm. specialties. Not trying to knock them at all, but they, they have a very high incidence of drug abuse and drug overdose and death. I personally, in my career, have known two anesthesia providers that overdosed. Oh, two. Wow. Thank you for that crime and plastic minute, doctor. It was very... Illuminating. It was, it was three minutes. It was like eight minutes, but yeah. So all these uh, crime and plastic minutes will probably be developed into full-length episodes at some point. Correct. So this each, is just your little preview. Each little headline warrants its own episode. Yes. Okay. So today's episode is about a famous, infamous 
gangster John Dillinger. Hey, I know about D- John Dillinger. You do? Public enemy number one. Public enemy number one. Huh. John Dillinger is remembered as one of the most notorious criminals of the 1930s. Even after his death, conspiracy theories still circled around his infamous image. Did his plastic mm. surgery help lead to his arrest or did it help him escape and stage his own death? Hey. Let's investigate. John Dillinger was born on June 22, 1903 in Indianapolis, Indiana. John was the younger of two children born to John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster. His father, a hardworking grocer, raised him in an atmosphere of disciplinary extremes, harsh and repressive on some occasions, but generous and permissive on others. In an interview with reporters, Dillinger said that his father was firm in his discipline and believed in the adage, spare the rod and spoil a child. Do you believe in that adage as a father? Is anybody listening? (laughs) Yes. Do you? Yes. But not in practice. But I believe in it. But you don't don't do it. No, but I think it's true. Okay. I just spoiled them. Yeah, (laughs) he definitely spoiled them. His older sister, Audrey, was born in 1889, and sadly, their mother, Molly, died in 1907, just before John turned four. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So Audrey's sister got married the same year that her mom died. She eventually had seven children, and she used to take care of her little brother until their father remarried to Elizabeth Lizzie Fields. They had three children, so he had three step-siblings, and John didn't like his stepmother. So when he was an adolescent, he was he got in trouble a lot. He quit school. He was smart, but he would always like stay out all night. He would lose his jobs because he got bored. He was, you know, kind of like a rebel teenager. So his dad thought it would be a good idea to leave the city. He was worried his son was going to go the wrong way. So his father sold his house, sold his property property in Indianapolis, and they moved to a farm in, uh, like, rural Indiana. They left the big city of Indianapolis. Yes. (laughs) Which closes even now at, like, 10 p.m. to go to a farm. I don't think I've ever been to Indianapolis. I have. So despite his new rural life, John's wild and rebellious behavior did not change. In 1922, he was arrested for auto theft and his relationship with his father deteriorated. And then to avoid getting arrested, he actually joined the Navy. Hmm. So I guess that was a thing to do. It's still a thing today. (laughs) It's still a thing today. You could commute your sentence or not get convicted if if you join the Army. Yeah. I was once in a courtroom, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. The kid had accidentally run over somebody, like an old man, I think killed him. And the judge gave him a choice between... A bunch of options, and one of them was join the army. Join the actually ended up in the navy. Is it specific to the navy? I don't know. I'll be like pass. (laughs) So did Joe. (laughs) Smash or pass? Pass. Pass. I would smash. I think I'd be a great marine. (laughs) You just saw what happened with the submersible. They like waterboard you to become a marine. I could not be on a submarine. Me neither. Could not. The navy is just not for me. I would have a panic attack. Yeah, I'd probably I'd probably press that up button. <laughs> 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 We're gonna be seen by enemy <laughs> ships. No, I don't <laughs> go up. <laughs> go up. I can't do it. I was in my head it was more like Top Gun, but okay. <laughs> In 1923, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy, where he was a petty officer assigned aboard the ship USS Utah. He got into trouble there too. He went AWOL a lot. And then when the ship docked in Boston, he skedaddled. <laughs> That was it. <laughs> that was it. And he was dishonorably discharged a few months later. Wow. I don't know anybody that's been dishonorably discharged. Do you? John Dillinger was a special <laughs> person. 
<laughs> I mean, I know they they must have dishonorable discharge because everybody I know was honorably discharged. There must be some people that get dishonorably I'm sure, discharged. I'm sure there's a good percentage every year. You think so? That. Yeah. Okay. Got to look that up. So then he returned to the farm and he's about right now, he's almost 21 and he meets a 17-year-old Beryl Ethel Hovius and they get married. He attempted to settle down, but he had difficulty. John had no luck finding work in the city, and he joined the town pool shark, Ed Singleton, in his search for <laughs> easy money. The two robbed a local grocery store, stealing $50. Which, Even easier money. <laughs> which is about $900 today. While leaving the scene, the criminals were spotted by a minister who recognized them and reported them to the police. Mm -hmm. During the robbery, Dillinger had struck a victim on the head with a machine bolt wrapped in a cloth and had also carried a gun, which, although it discharged, luckily didn't hit anybody. So they were arrested the next day. Singleton pled not guilty, but Dillinger's father kind of guilted him into, after talking to the police, kind of convinced him to plead guilty so he wouldn't lie. And he thought that he wouldn't get in trouble because he was being honest. So he kind of convinced Dillinger to confess. Right. It didn't work out. <laughs> he was like, don't lie under oath. Yeah, he said, tell just, the truth. Just like the prosecutor kind of convinced him, like, they'll go easy on him. Let him just tell the truth. Da, da, da. So they sentenced him 10 to 20 years. Over Ooh. $900? Well, because he had a weapon and he, he shot and he assaulted somebody. The guy didn't die. No, it was assault and robbery and discharging and, a firearm. Yeah. They definitely were harsh on him. And his father told reporters who regretted his advice and was shocked by the sentence. He pleaded with the judge to shorten the sentence, but with no success. Mm. And then on the way to jail, Dillinger escaped. They caught him a few minutes later. What See, kind of an escape is that a few minutes later? I don't know. He okay. gets he gets better at it. Just wait. Okay. <laughs> he was incarcerated and then he became kind of more of a criminal in prison. He became friends with criminals. the criminals <laughs> while he was in prison. Ma majority of the prison population is made up of criminals, I would yes. imagine. And then when he was admitted to prison, he said, he's quoted saying, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. So wow. he warned everybody. <laughs> and then it's like Babe Ruth calling his shot. <laughs> I'm going to hit it right there. His wife back home, she tried to stay with him for a few years, but she's a young girl. She couldn't handle it. And they had kids? No, they didn't okay. have kids. Then why did she and just she, stick around? I mean, she stuck around for five years. They got divorced in 1929. Not That's a bad. lot of sticking around with no yeah. kids. Especially in 1920s, they said they couldn't, it was really hard to like commute. You know, to go to prison to visit and all of that. I'm it wasn't sure. like transportation also, wasn't so great. Ten to twenty years, like bye. Yeah. yeah, she was only like seventeen. So, yeah, she divorces him. I think she remarries and eventually has kids okay. um, with somebody else. His physical examination at the prison showed that he had gonorrhea, and the treatment for the condition was extremely painful. What's <laughs> it? Isn't it just for antibiotics? Was it different then? I don't think they had antibiotics then. They cut off the penis back then. So what do they do? Maybe they uh, irrigated your penis with sounds painful turpentine. I don't Ooh. have no idea. When did when did Bleach. he when did when did he discover penicillin? Wasn't it in like nineteen fourteen, early nineteen hundreds? It wasn't widely. Was it widely spread? They, though? I wasn't mean, manufactured. I, I know that syphilis and gonorrhea. They were still trying to figure out how to treat it in the thirties and forties, and I think even to the fifties. Wow. Thank God for antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So he, while he's in prison, he becomes embittered against society because of his long prison sentence. And he befriends other criminals, including seasoned bank robbers, Harry Pete Piermont, Charles Mackley, Russell Clark, and Homer Van Meter, who all taught Dillinger how to be a successful criminal. Is this the Dillinger gang? Yeah. Oh. 
Yes. I've heard of them. The men planned heists that they would commit <laughs> soon after their release. Dillinger also studied Herman Lamb's bank robbing system. Oh, that I know. And used it extensively throughout his criminal career. What's his bank I, robbing system? I, I studied the Lamb bank robbing system at length. Yes. What is it? Most bank robberies, even today, are follow, this follow this system. What is it? The Her Herbert Lamb or Herman, Herman Lamb, Lamb, whatever his name is. <laughs> Do you know what the actual system is? Yeah. It's in every movie you've ever seen. It's, it's just basic stuff. You case the place. Yes. Careful research on the timing <laughs> of the guards. Uh-huh. You research time when there's the least or most customers that you want to do. Mm -hmm. You lay it out. You make a model of the bank or whatever. You rehearse it. You have four people. You have a... This uh, is a system you would love. A crowd. <laughs> I, I love systems. You have a guy to control the crowd. Uh -huh. The person who's going to do the, the bank robbing, the robbing of the bank. You have a... Getaway. Uh, getaway car and a guy that controls the... Takes care of the uh, security. It's okay. like four... You need like four people. Well, he, they have... It's like Ocean's Eleven, you know? Yeah. Well, they have four. They have one, two, three, four, five. They have an extra. You need a getaway car. You need to also uh, plan your escape route with an alternate escape route. It's a whole thing. Why did you study this extensively? Get him, officer. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you know that? <laughs> it's a system. Because he likes to know random stuff. Know random stuff. It's just like his thing. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so John's father is still feeling really bad that he suckered his son into getting this extra long sentence. <laughs> he starts a campaign to have him released and gets a petition, has 188 signatures. And then after he served nine and a half years, he was paroled. But unfortunately, when he was paroled, it was 19, uh, May 10, 1933. It was like right smack at the height of the Great Depression. So, and like the Midwest Dust Bowl era. Yes, yes. So, Crops weren't doing well. Yeah, there was like rain and dust, low rain and then dust and all of that. Yeah. So Good timing. You know, so he couldn't find a job. So he turned to his life of crime. <laughs> I would have done the same. He didn't, he didn't have many options. So on June 21st, 1933, he robbed his first bank, stealing $10,000. That's about $177,000 today. That's a big upgrade from his uh, grocery store robbery, yeah, from which his was $50. like 50 bucks. Yeah. On August 14th, Dillinger robbed a bank in Bluffton, Ohio. He was tracked by police from Dayton, Ohio, was captured and later transferred to Allen County Jail in Lima to be indicted in connection to the Bluffton robbery. So they searched him when they arrested him and they found a map oh. of a prison escape. So basically what he did is he had this whole plan to break out his friends from the other prison. So he got caught on purpose. No, I don't know that he, no, he didn't get caught on purpose, oh. but they found the escape plan that he was using for his friends who were still back oh, in, uh, in the first prison. I understand. I understand. And yeah. so this plan was happening. Like he, it was basically, they were having like the laundry people bring in weapons and then they, and they escaped. So he made the plan for his friends to escape. His friends escaped. And then they rescue him from his incarceration. Oh, that's nice. That's good. That's good karma. Yes. So this is when LA start the first Dillinger gang. That's nice. <laughs> but was the just the plan involved putting stuff like in the laundry? Yeah. He had friends who worked in the prison laundry, he had them smuggle guns into their cells, which they used to escape four days after John's capture. And then mm. they formed up and they went and they got him out of Lima. Mm. Out of the it's other so prison. Movie like. I'm yeah. sure. I think there are many movies about him. I think but there were no movies at the time this happened. Yeah. I think the first bank robbery movies were all based on what they did. Yeah. Like they were writing the original script. Right. <laughs> People In were so life. ballsy back then. <laughs> like, I need money. I'm going to go to a really populated, heavily secured bank. <laughs> well, there were no credit cards. There was no fraud like in that way. 
except for kiting checks, you know. Like the, the money was like all Leonardo in the DiCaprio bank. and Catch Me If You Can. Right. So he was with the Dillinger gang for about a year and they did 12 separate bank robberies. It's one a month. Yeah. They were pretty busy. And then around that time in like late 1933, Dillinger meets Billy Frenchette, who his, becomes his girlfriend. And they met at a dance hall. And she says, John was good to me. He gave me everything a girl wants. He treated me like a lady. How was he not caught by this point? How, how do they do 12 bank robberies in a year and like no one's on them? Yeah, it's like those Taiwan police who couldn't catch those people. At least the Taiwan police knew to look. Yeah. yeah well, but I guess it's have... easier to hide it back then. You know, you didn't really have like credit card trails or, you know, you could just like stay home. Yeah. They, they have ro- to like lock down every door or whatever. They just relied on a picture right. that someone drew or printed a yeah. black and white picture that they put up in post offices. Right. Hoping somebody would recognize them. Right. But there was very little communication. There was no computers, like you said. Right. There's no way to track it. There's no trail. Everything was, was in cash that they were buying. Right. It was hard to track somebody. They had a lot of money, too. They could have bribed people. Yeah. I mean, 12 banks. How much did they get from the first one, you said? 10000 and that's like $177,000 today. And they did today. 12 of them? Yeah, they probably... They had millions of dollars they could have used to, you know... Yeah. So, on January 25th, 1934... Dillinger and his gang were captured in Tucson, Arizona. He was extradited to Indiana and John was taken to Lake County Jail to face charges for the murder of a policeman who was killed during a Dillinger gang bank robbery in Chicago. But John escapes again. (laughs) Got him. (laughs) He produced a pistol catching deputies and guards by surprise and was able to leave the premises without firing a single shot. Afterwards, they all thought that it probably wasn't even a real gun. That he kind of like made it out of like something in a cell. Like he used a razor to shave some shelf or something to looking like a gun. But he held a security guard at gunpoint. He, he's like, no, it was real. <laughs> he said, no. I, he's yeah, like, it was real. He doesn't want to feel like he was stupid. <laughs> and he escaped with another guy, Herbert Youngblood. So Dillinger and Youngblood both escaped mm-hmm. from this prison. During the escape. Youngblood and another officer had a shootout. They both killed each other, and, but Dillinger got away. But before he died, Youngblood told officers John was in the neighborhood of Port Huron. What a snitch. Yeah. <laughs> I know. He's he really about to die. Yeah, Shut just, the fuck up. <laughs> just die. I know. It's true. What? <laughs> you think he's related to Stephanie Youngblood? <laughs> From Maybe. the Robert Bierenbaum <laughs> story? Maybe. So they began to search for him, but no trace of him was found. And then John was indicted by a grand jury. So the Bureau of Investigation, which is the precursor to the FBI, mm-hmm. organized a nationwide manhunt for him. Just hours after his escape from the jail, he reunited with his girlfriend, Billy Frenchette. According to Billy's trial testimony, he stayed with her for almost two weeks. However, the two had actually traveled to the Twin Cities and taken lodgings in Minneapolis, where they stayed for 15 days. In Minneapolis, Dillinger met John Red Hamilton, and the two mustered a new gang consisting of <laughs> Babyface Nelson's gang, which had Nelson, Homer Van Meter, which was part of his other gang, Tommy Carroll and Eddie Green. Three days after John's escape from jail, the second gang robbed a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A week later, they robbed the first national bank in Mason City, Iowa. After they were in Minneapolis, John and Billy traveled to John's father in Mooresville to that farm where he grew up. Are we counting how many banks already? Is it now it's like 14, I'm, 15 banks? I'm not. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you can, though. Friday, April 6, 1934, was spent contacting family members, particularly his half-brother, Hubert Dillinger. 
Hubert Dillinger left and proceeded to Ohio to see Joseph and Lena Pierpont, parents of Prohibition-era gangster Harry Pierpont. The Pierpots were not home, so the two headed back to Mooresville around midnight. So basically, John and his half-brother, they went to go find another gangster. They weren't home, so they came back to the farm. But is his girlfriend's with him at the farm? Yeah, his okay. girlfriend's with him at the farm. And then on the way back... This farm is where? In Minnesota? Indiana. Indiana, okay. His family's pretty cool for like yeah. hosting him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure my family would. would he was would famous, you? though, wasn't he? Would famous? I? John Dillinger? Yeah. Yeah. He was like a famous... He was famous. Yeah. Like you said, there was like an interview with him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so then on the way back from trying to meet this gangster, Hubert fell asleep at the wheel and rammed into this couple. <laughs> So they crashed through a farm fence. Police showed up at the car crash scene, but they got they got away before the cops saw them. But the car they found in the car maps, a machine gun, a uh, rope, and a bullwhip. What were they going to do with that? According to Hubert, his brother planned to pay a visit. So John planned to pay a visit with the bullwhip to his former one armed lawyer Joseph Ryan, who had run off with his retainer. <laughs> So, Are you serious? <laughs> yes. He had a one-armed lawyer. Yes, who robbed ran off, him. Yes, who ran off with his retainer. He's a one-armed. Did, did he lose his first arm by doing that <laughs> to another client? Who knows? And then uh, his new lawyer is Louis Paquette. So this happened in the middle, like April seventh at three thirty a.m. They got into a car crash. They left the scene. They ran back to their farm. And the police found all this stuff in the car. And then they they buy a new car that morning around 10.30. Billy and Dillinger's brother, they buy a new Ford V8. On April 8th, the Dillingers enjoyed a nice family picnic where the FBI had the farm under surveillance nearby. Agents Garrity and Donegan. They were cruising in the vicinity in their car. Later in the afternoon, suspecting they were being watched, the group left in separate cars. So Billy, which is his girlfriend, drove the new car with two of Dillinger's nieces sitting in the front of back seat, and John was on the floor of the car hiding. Nice. And children is uh, <laughs> human shields. And then, the like you were saying before, the FBI agents actually saw him later, but they didn't recognize him. And then the following day, he had an appointment at a tavern, and Dillinger had his spidey sense up, so he sent in his girlfriend first, and they were there. And they arrested her, and he mm. left. He left what? first. Fuck this guy. <laughs> and they never saw each other again. Just like a man. Yeah. He was waiting in his car outside the tavern and then drove off unnoticed. And then they said that he... he just like Homer Simpson back into the hedge. <laughs> <like>. <laughs> and they say that he was really sad after this happened and he wanted to go back to rescue her, but the rest of his gang convinced him not to. Right. Because it was too... Too uh, risky. Too risky. So then later that night... Dillinger and Van Meter took a hostage, an Indiana police officer, and they marched him at gunpoint to the police station and they stole more guns and bulletproof vests. Mm. And then John picked up Hamilton and another one of his gang members and they traveled to Michigan where they visited Hamilton's sister. You think this is where the we're getting the gang back together comes from? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Okay, so Paquette is his lawyer and Paquette has a guy, Art O'Leary, who's like his private investigator and works for him. Mm -hmm. So he says that Dillinger expressed an interest in plastic surgery in March 1934. I knew there was a plastic surgery angle coming in here. <laughs> and had asked O'Leary to check with Paquette on such matters. So then in April, Paquette paid a visit to an old friend of his, Dr. Wilhelm Lozer. 
Or loser. Loser. <laughs> Spelled L-O-E-S-E-R. So he was a plastic <laughs> surgeon who practiced in Chicago for 27 years. Hi, I'm Dr. Loser. <laughs> I will be your plastic surgeon today. So he was convicted um, under the Harrison Narcotic Act. So I'm guessing he's still some pain pills too. Just, just like, like our news today. See, crime doesn't change, guys. It does not change. <laughs> it continues... He was sentenced to three years at Leavenworth, but was paroled just a year later with Paquette's help. So I guess Paquette was his lawyer, too. This plastic surgeon said that he also did plastic surgery on himself and he and he removed his fingerprints. Nice. So they st- they were able to do fingerprints back then? Yes. When did, did fingerprints start? Early. On, early. How Wait, accurate was like, it? I, I think like Sherlock Holmes era had fingerprints, I think. I think it's like oldie. So how did they do? They just like matched it by eye? Yeah. They just looked and said, yeah. like, these experts would just say these are the yeah. same. Yo, yeah, that's fucking crazy. I think that's hard. If I went to jail because <laughs> someone eyeballed my fingerprint. I... <laughs> no, you could trace it. You could look, you could put uh, it next to each other. It seems difficult to do, mm-hmm. to be a fingerprint expert without, I'm very, I guess, technology dependent. If you, Me too. If you, there was no computers back then at all. I understand. I'm just saying it's hard to just look at two fingerprints well, and say, okay, your, these are identical. I just that's wouldn't, your job. Yeah. But that wouldn't be that beyond a reasonable doubt. I guess it was. Did they, I don't know if they accepted fingerprint testimony. They might not have. I hope they didn't. So Piquette sets Dillinger up with this loser. <laughs> Yeah. doctor and it's pretty expensive he said five thousand dollars for plastic surgery so i guess today that would have been yesterday's like, prices are today's prices no that would have been like that's a 50 lot grand more because they said 10 was 177 so this was like 80 80 grand good job dr loser yeah i mean the lawyer was taking a cut and the investigator was taking a cut and they paid 600 dollars to the anesthesiologist dr harold cassidy and they, they did the procedure in Paquette's friend's house, James Probasco. On May 28th, Loser was picked up at his home. <laughs> I'm just calling him Loser. <laughs> like Shatina. Shatina. I might be Loser, but I'm calling him Loser. So he was picked up at 7.30 and by O'Leary and uh, Cassidy. Cassidy's the anesthesiologist. Uh, O'Leary's the private investigator for the lawyer. And then they drive to Probasco's house. That's the friend's house. And he chose to have general anesthesia. Risky. Risky. So Loser, Loser says that, um, this is a quote from him. I asked him what, he, what work he wanted done. He wanted moles removed on the right lower forehead between the eyes and one at the left outer angle of the left eye. Wanted a depression of the nose filled in, a scar, a large one to the left of the median line of the upper lip excised. Wanted his dimples removed and wanted the angle of the mouth drawn up. That's well, smart. Yeah, it's all like identifying features. Yeah, because when you were remember, you didn't have your phones. You had a picture posted basically in a post office or in the precinct wall. So you had to go by, okay, what distinctive features do you have? Okay, he's got a mole in his left cheek. He's got his mouth turned down. Dimples. He's got dimples. You remember that. And then you see a guy about that height with those things. If he has none of them, no dimples, no mole. Mouth turned up instead of down. So, how good was plastic surgery in 1934? Good enough. Good enough. If you don't mind about, if you don't mind scars, like now, these now were have, these were procedures that were like well done in 1934. Not by Doctor Loser. <laughs> you don't know. He was charging 50 grand. He might be like the best. I doubt it. I think I would have heard about Doctor Loser. <laughs> so, plastic surgery started around World War One. Correct. That's when they were. So, Correct. we're about 15 years. 
almost 20 years well, in? Well, yeah, it was, but until World War II or so, there were no specialties though. So it was just- Like really. Okay. So you became a surgeon, you did everything, and then you, you started to just do more or less one operation. Okay. Brain surgery, kidney surgery, whatever it was. Would this be a difficult surgery for you to do, sir? No, it would be easy for me to do. <laughs> I could easily turn John Dillinger into uh, Jackie Dillinger. Really, I could do whatever. We could do it. Cassidy, the anesthesiologist, also sounds like <laughs> a great just... doctor. He administered an overdose of ether, which caused John to suffocate. So he started turning blue and stopped breathing. Yeah. Loser pulled his tongue out of his mouth with a pair of forceps and at the same time forced both elbows into his ribs. Nice. The old he force the elbow. That's why you need the Heimlich maneuver and CPR. That also came later. So they did. So he put his elbows into his ribs and pulled his tongue out? No. So he pulled his tongue out because yeah. it, it fell back in the back of his throat. Because okay. if you suppress your breathing, usually you have a gag reflex. Right. So you cough, whatever, but your tongue goes back and no air goes in and out. So he must have been breathing, trying to breathe, but nothing. His tongue How does backwards. it go? How does your tongue? It's like. Like, does it go up and back or just it like... It just closes off your airway. It just falls backwards. Gravity. Okay. It's fine. If you, if you lie down, and you have to like... Yeah. Like that. Okay. You usually, if, if if the back of your throat, anything touches the back of your throat, like when you get a uh, a strep test, yeah. you cough immediately. Right. But if you're not conscious or you're deeply asleep, right. you don't have that reflex. Okay. That's a problem. So, so he, put, he, just, he... he just shoved his elbow into his ribs to give him pain to wake him up. Oh, uh, okay. To stimulate him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he gasped and resumed breathing. The procedure continued with only local anesthetic. So loser <laughs> removed several moles of Dillinger's forehead. I don't think that the anesthesiologist should get paid. <laughs> I agree. He tried. He gave him. So what was anesthesiology like back in the 30s? Primitive. So they just, ba it's like basically giving him like alcohol. <laughs> yeah, no, ether, you know, just yeah. like, you know, like a wet rag <laughs> over their face. <laughs> It's a little bit more than that, but also the gases were highly flammable. So did a lot of people die from anesthesia? Yeah, fires all the time. That's why we wear little booties, by the way. The little booties, that shoe covers that surgeons wear, they weren't developed to protect your shoes. They're developed so you didn't build up static charge because you would, you know, those little shocks you get right. in the winter? Right, right. <sighs> oh, just the gases, the, gases. the gases would just explode. Oh, that's crazy. Many, many fires. Surgery was... Well, they were learning. There's a learning curve. Surgery was, I mean, it's still scary, but it was very scary. <laughs> no, anesthesia was like, yeah. I mean, now nowadays, thank God, very few people die from anesthesia. But right. back in the day, it was not uncommon. Yeah. Okay, so he removed several moles from the forehead, made an incision in his nose and an incision in his chin and tied back both cheeks. <laughs> nice. Is that how he lifted up his mouth? Yeah. So uh, how, he, he just did like the most, like he didn't care about the scars. So he just like hacked his face. He basically? hacked his face. He just did like directly. So he, like if someone wanted to do a nose job, I'll just cut here. You know, just like on the top of your nose. There, the bump's gone. You and know, his it, chin. Yeah. And then he just put like. Did they have sutures? They have sutures. Yeah. The loser met with Paquette again on Saturday, and Paquette told him that John wanted more work, and that his friend. <laughs> He's so happy. And then his friend Van Meter wanted the same work done to him too. And now, also, both of them wanted to remove their fingerprints. Got it. The price for the fingerprint procedure was $500 per hand or $100 per finger. Oh. So he used a mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acid. Nice. Sounds painful. It is. Extremely painful. Your fingertips have, more, very have more nerves than, you know, 
than, than I, other sensitive parts of your body. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Just from even like the stupid COVID finger pricks hurt. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts sensitive. big time. Yeah. So then, loser met O'Leary the following night, and they once again they drove to Probasco's house, and John Dillinger, Van Meter, and Cassidy were there. Mm-hmm. And loser testified that later, obviously, that O'Leary, <laughs> O'Leary and Paquette left. So the lawyer and the investigator left uh, after about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Cassidy and I, this is another quote from Loser. Cassidy and I worked on Dillinger and Van Meter simultaneously on June 3rd. While the work was being done, Dillinger and Van Meter changed off. So basically, like, one was being worked on, the other one would sit on the couch, and then they'd trade off. Right. Okay, the hands were sterilized, made aseptic with antiseptics, Mm -hmm. thoroughly washed with soap and water, and used sterile gauze afterwards to keep them clean. Lex cutting, just like his opera port. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Lex cutting instrument knife was used to expose the lower skin. In other words, take off the epidermis and expose the derma, then, then alternately the acid and the alkaloid was applied as was necessary to produce the desired result. Sounds super painful. Does. Oh, but Ugh. he must have used local anesthetic, though. He said he had local anesthetic. Yeah, he anesthetic. had Cassidy there. Yeah, so, so it, wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt that much then. And then two nights later, they did some minor corrections on uh, Van Meter and John. <laughs> minor revisions. <laughs> minor revisions. And then a man came in before Loser left, and it was Babyface Nelson. <laughs> I want to look older. <laughs> he's super famous. They call me Babyface? Yeah, he's part of the gang. He came in with a drum of machine gun bullets under his arm, threw them on the bed or the couch in the bedroom, and started to talk to Van Meter. Then the two motioned for Dillinger to come over, and the three went back into the kitchen. So then Dillinger and Van Meter recovered at Probasco's house. <laughs> it was his, uh, his recovery suite. And sometimes they would like go, for, go away for a day or two, come back, leaving separately. They think that Dillinger was going to meet up a girl meet up with a girl sometimes and because van meter they heard van meter like telling him to be careful not to like go out with strangers and, right. and then o'leary that's the lawyer's uh, investigator yeah. he said that dillinger expressed dissatisfaction with the facial work that loser had performed on him <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like his he didn't like his plastic surgery no o'leary said did that he, did he give him five stars on yelp <laughs> i don't think what so. did you do back then if you weren't happy I don't know. Well, Dillinger had machine guns with him, so. Not as bad as Yelp, though. (laughs) Dillinger would go out. He went out for like a lot of walks, you know, around the neighborhood and it was making Probasco nervous because he didn't want, you know, people to. He thought he was immune now because he looked different and he had no fingerprints. Yeah. So he thought he could just walk wherever he wanted. But the agents arrested Dr. Loser on July 24th. They also arrested Probasco. Mm-hmm. Because there was, uh, there, I guess there was a rumor that he had plastic surgery. So they were looking, so the Department of Justice was looking for two doctors and another man connection with some plastic surgery that had been done on John Dillinger. Right. O'Leary, the investigator, he hightailed it. <laughs> he said, <laughs> Peace. Peace. Especially when he found out Loser was arrested. Paquette told him, though, don't worry, you're fine. And then uh, Probasco actually, while he was in custody, somehow felt his death from the 19th floor of the Bankers Building in Chicago. <laughs> Suspicious. No, yeah. And then in August, Van Meter was shot and killed in a dead-end alley in St. Paul by Tom Brown, former St. Paul chief of police. Mm. So one of his buddies was caught. 
Then J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, he has Sarail Agent Cowley to head the FBI's investigative efforts against Dillinger. Agent Cowley. Yes. <laughs> of the FBI. Yes. So Cowley set up headquarters in Chicago where he and Melvin Purvis, a special agent in charge of Chicago office, planned their strategy. A squad of agents under Cowley worked with East Chicago policemen in tracking down all tips and rumors. So late in the afternoon, Ella Cumpanias, a madam from a brothel in Gary, Indiana, contacted the FBI. She was a Romanian immigrant threatened with deportation for low moral character. <laughs> and offered agents information on Dillinger in exchange for their help in preventing her deportation. So she wanted to make a deal. You can so, be deported for low moral character. Back then, I don't yeah. think it's uh, I don't think it's a thing now. She couldn't just marry one of her Johns. I don't know. They said uh, due to the nature of her profession, she was considered an undesirable alien by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and deportation proceedings had been started. But she was willing to sell the FBI information about Dillinger. To um, stop the case. To stop the case. Because she recognized Dillinger as someone who came to her brothel. Mm -hmm. So Cowley and Purvis were like, they were cautious. They promised her the war reward if Dillinger was captured. But really, they, I don't even know why she agreed. Because they said all they could do was tell the Department of Labor that she cooperated with them. Anna said this was okay. And she told the agents that a girlfriend of hers, Polly Hamilton had visited her establishment with Dillinger and she recognized Dillinger for a newspaper photograph. She was better than the investigators. She recognized him. <laughs> so Loser really did did shit surgery. <laughs> well, she was looking below the waist. They didn't have pictures of that. No, but maybe he went there before, like in the olden I days, know. you know. So she revealed that the couple were going to see a movie together the following day. Oh. And she said she would wear an orange dress so the police could identify her. But she wasn't sure which theater they were going to because mm -hmm. he, I guess he was going to decide when he picked them up. So there were two theaters, the Biograph or the Marlboro. She asked him what show he was going to see and he said he would like to see the theater around the corner meeting the Biograph theater. So then she said she was unable to leave the house to inform Purvis or Martin about Dillinger's plans to attend the Biograph, but they were going to have fried chicken for the evening meal. She told Polly she had nothing in which to fry the chicken and was going to the store to get some butter. Then, while at the store, she called Mr. Purvis and informed him of Dillinger's plans to attend the biograph that evening, at the same time obtaining the butter. See, she was smart. Yes. She still came back with the butter. Yes. Because... It would be suspicious. It would be suspicious if she went to get butter and didn't get butter. Right. So then, after she got the butter, she went back to the house so Polly wouldn't be suspicious that mm -hmm. she went out to call anyone. Mm -hmm. So, a team of federal agents and officers, they, like, staked out the... The polygraph. The Biograph. The Biograph. The Biograph <laughs> Theater. So they were waiting. They still sent a team to the other theater just in case also. So one team surrounded the Biograph and they sent one team to Marlboro. So they so they had teams at each theater and then they confirmed that they were going to the Biograph. So they sent the team from the other theater to go to the Biograph and they went to go see Clark Gable in Manhattan Melodrama. Hmm. Cowley also called Hoover for instructions. And Hoover cautioned them to wait outside rather than risk a shooting match inside the theater. Each man was instructed not to unnecessarily endanger himself and was told that if Dillinger offered any resistance, it would be each man for himself. So at 1030, John Dillinger, with his two female companions on each arm, walked out of the theater and turned to his left. Listen, if there's a code, it's every man for himself. Okay? <laughs> so one of the agents lights a cigar as a signal to the other ones. And Dillinger quickly realized what was happening and grabbed his pistol 
and ran towards the alley. Five shots were fired from the guns of the three FBI agents. Three of the shots hit Dillinger, and he fell face down on the pavement. Oof. 20 minutes later, John Dillinger was pronounced dead in the hospital. Mm. And the agents who fired at Dillinger were Charles, Winstead, Clarence, Hurt, and Herman Hollis. Each man was commended by J. Edgar Hoover for fearlessness and courageous action. Mm. None of them ever said who actually was the one who killed him. Mm. And Dillinger was buried in Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis, Indiana. And the events of this July night in Chicago marked the beginning of the end of the gangster era. Eventually, 27 persons were convicted in federal courts on charges of harboring and aiding and abetting John Dillinger and his cronies. And now his family was getting it back <laughs> for hosting them. <laughs> All uh, for being good family members are going to jail. And then a few months later in November, Babyface was... Babyface uh, Nelson? Yes. Babyface Nelson was killed in a battle with the FBI. And then the agent Cowley, who was head of the Dillinger manhunt, he was also killed in the oh, shooting really? match with uh, Babyface Nelson. An autopsy on John Dillinger's body was performed the day after his death. However, the autopsy report went missing for 50 years before <laughs> it was found at Cook County Medical Examiner's Office inside a brown paper bag in 1984. So according to the newspaper, Indianapolis Star, the body mm -hmm. was 5'7 and was 150 pounds, which matched the information on Dillinger's driver's license. He sustained four bullet wounds from the shootout, three of which were superficial, the fourth one went through his face and lacerated his neck tissues. Mm. Several scars from his previous injuries were also observed, including on his thighs and legs. There was a discrepancy in Dillinger's eye color, as it was listed as brown on the autopsy report, but his records from the Navy said they were blue. Mm. However, Cook County Medical Examiner said that it was inconsequential, as the eyes tend to change appearance after death because of clouding of the cornea. Is that yeah. true? Yes. The documents claim details about the buried body that don't add up, including the non-match of his eye color, the ear shape and protrusion from his head, the fingerprints not matching, the existence of a heart condition, and the apparent non-match of the anterior teeth. But his fingerprints were removed, so that makes sense. Could have been other people. It yeah. seems like it was him. Yeah. Dillinger, who spent nearly a decade in state prison before embarking on the life of crime that made him infamous, endured tremendous physical pain to alter his identity. The same year he was gunned down by the FBI after watching Clark Gable's crime film, Dillinger underwent plastic surgery and attempted to remove his fingerprints by burning them with acid. So yeah, yeah. so that yeah. explains the fingerprints. Mm -hmm. There were reports that the body was unrecognizable when it arrived at the morgue, but Dillinger's great-nephew confirmed that was in fact Dillinger's body. It was rushed. It was very hectic that night. John was a legendary figure, so I, fi so I think there were some mistakes made. When I was younger, I wanted to believe that he got away, that it wasn't him, but it was him. Mm. That's what that's a quote from his nephew. Who saw him. Yeah, who right. saw his body. The FBI denies any suggestion that they shot and killed the wrong man, saying in a statement that Dillinger was taken down. It doesn't seem like there's much to, much controversy, just the eye color. But if that's a valid... And the teeth and the ears and the other stuff? Okay, how could how could he you explain the teeth? He might have changed. changed it. I mean, if he went through the you know the pain of moving his fingertips, maybe there's a dentist somewhere that knows more than right. Well, either way, but people thought he was alive for yeah, years. Yeah, people thought it was a conspiracy that he that, got away. That he got away. He had a lot of money. He could bribe people for sure. Yeah, just like in the Narcos episode. Yeah, that yeah. one seems more likely that he actually it, got away. I agree. It was more uh, more believable. This is like they shot him. He was right there. Yeah. He was smart, but not that smart. Come on now. 
I don't like that they judge like the best criminals. Like John Dillinger can't be one of the best criminals because it was too easy for him back then. Do you know what I mean? Like, like the <laughs> he Michael couldn't Jordan, have. <laughs> this is like the Michael Jordan versus LeBron, LeBron James argument. Debate, yeah. You're saying that like it's that, like, harder basketball. to be a, Harder Basketball to be a bank was... robber now than then. But isn't it all relative? He, he robbed 24 banks. That's a lot of banks. Right, but could he even rob one today? Well, Herman Lamb is the still... The Lamb <laughs> is still <laughs> being used. It would take more preparation, I think. I don't think he could even do one. I don't think he could do one jailbreak now. I don't think he could do any of those things. Right. Yeah, jailbreaks are hard. Well, they lear- they changed the system because of him. Because of Dillinger. Yeah. And because of that know? other guy I was talking about. Yeah. So they so basically they had to update their crime prevention because of these earlier criminals. Mark no, I'm not saying that they're not great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying like how skilled really were they? That's true. All right. So that's the story of uh, public enemy number one. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed. Public uh, plastic enemy number one. Yes. <laughs> I know. We'll have, a cri- we'll, we'll have a criminal rating system at the end of the season. <laughs> Who you guys think was the most accomplished criminal? The plastic surgeon. Did he get jail time? I don't know. I don't know what his sentence was. He had gone to jail before for the narcotics. So I don't know what he did now. Okay. Well, that was a great episode. I love that. Uh, That was brought to you by... Crocs. Pita. Hoka's. Hoka's. The most comfortable sneaker you'll ever own. Hoka's. (laughs) That's probably true. Yes. They are very comfortable. I agree. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back next week with Crime and Plastic.